The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He's remembered today primarily for his devotion to literature, and in particular for the exchanges he had with a reclusive poet from Amherst, whose shy, humble inquiries belied her bold poems and powerful intellect. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was intelligent enough to recognize her genius, which is no small feat when the genius is as innovative and unconventional as Emily Dickinson. Had he only recognized, encouraged, edited, and published Emily Dickinson, he would come down through history as one of his heroes. But he was also a hero in another way, both as the member of a secret organization of anti-slavery advocates and, later, during the Civil War, as a battlefield hero as well. It's the stuff of legend, or dreams, which is especially appropriate for us today, because we're also going to be visited by two book dreamers, Eve Yohalam and Julie Sternberg, hosts of the Book Dreams podcast, who will be telling us about their efforts to put books and dreams in the hands of some very deserving children. Legends and Dreams, Real Life and Holiday Magic, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Feeling good, still living in my extended October. I just couldn't give that month up this year, and I saw zero reasons why I should. Most years, I follow the calendar scrupulously. I mean, I've up until this year, I had a perfect record. If the calendar said May 9th, 1984, I lived on May 9th, 1984. There was no separation between me and the calendar. No separation whatsoever. I had a streak going. I checked in with the folks at the Guinness Book of World Records, but I must have dialed the wrong number because the people on the other end laughed and hung up. So my streak is unofficial, but I think I probably did hold the record. January 10th, 2006. I was on January 10th, 2006. Every day I nailed it until this year. This year I decided to just stay in October for a while because I love it so much. Two weeks that November can spare, surely. I carved them out in November. So I'm enjoying my extended stay. October is glad to have me and I kind of have the place all to myself. And November's so busy getting ready for Thanksgiving, they haven't even missed me. I might make this a tradition. Speaking of traditions, we have a good one coming up, one I would like to start anyway. Lori Frankel is going to be here on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We always run that episode a day ahead of time, not on our Thursday schedule. We run it on Wednesday for those of you spending your day in the kitchen, cooking up a storm or a meal. If your family isn't a big fan of cooked up storms, I do love a good storm, but even I have to admit it's not the best meal for a holiday. It's not even in my top 10, I'd say, especially if you have babies at the table. They tend to cry and wreck everything. So Lori's going to be here for a special treat, which I won't surprise. It's a fun episode like last year, FMK Shakespeare. Ah, let the traditions 
begin. We're going to do something different, though. And we're going to have a pair of book dreamers here soon. Eve and Julie will tell you about a special project they're working on. Before we do that, though, let's talk about Thomas Wentworth Higginson. First, I'm going to tell you all about his relationship with Emily Dickinson. As I said, that's mainly what he's known for, at least for us literature types. He was the midwife of sorts for her poetry, kind of like Maxwell Perkins or Gordon Lish or a handful of other famous editors who played a key role in bringing masterpieces to the world. It's a wonderful story. Both Higginson and Dickinson are wonderful in it, and it's worth sharing to help us learn more about her and her poetry and him, too. Then I'll tell you all about his secret past, which makes his relationship with Emily all the more interesting, I think. He was a man of many qualities, some of them open, some of them a bit secret. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1823. Cambridge, of course, is famous as the home of Harvard University, which was already a couple of hundred years old. When Higginson was born, in fact, it turned 200 in 1836, which happened to be the year that the 13-year-old Thomas Wentworth Higginson enrolled in Harvard College. Three years later, he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. He graduated from the college and enrolled in Harvard's Divinity School, planning to be a Unitarian minister. He dropped out of school, and we'll have more about this period in his life later, but we're going to jump all the way from 1847, when he leaves Divinity School, to 1862. He's nearing 40 at this point. He's held an interest in literature along with his religious and political beliefs, and he writes an article for the Atlantic Monthly called Letter to a Young Contributor. My dear young gentleman or young lady, he begins, noting that many of the manuscripts he receives as an editor of The Atlantic are signed by, quote, very masculine names in very feminine handwriting, end quote. The essay is kind of an apology and a word of encouragement in advance. And if you've ever been a creative writing teacher or an editor or an agent or a publisher, or if you've ever judged a writing contest, you know what this is like. You know what's behind his impulse. You know how badly people want your approval. A thumbs up from you can change their lives, literally. No longer are these suffering writers relegated to the status of wannabes with their their desperation. They're kind of, please take me. I've been telling all my friends that I write and that I'm a writer. It's how I view myself. I've been Spending all this time doing it, maybe I'm not good enough, but what then? What what does that mean for me? It's who I am. And that's the power you hold in your hands if you're on the other end of that. It can turn you into an egomaniac to say, I am the judge, my taste counts, you go through me. But it can also be humbling. And that's the kind of person Thomas Wentworth Higginson appears to have been. He's humble enough to say, hey, look, young contributor, there's a lot of great work that we get, and there's only so much room in our pages. We turn down 
greatness all the time. And furthermore, we might be wrong. We might miss something. The slush pile is big, and you've probably noticed we tend to publish a lot of the same authors over and over. Hey, don't worry, we're hungering and thirsting after novelties. Every editor is. And yet, due to needs for efficiency, we're also inclined to go with the regular old staff of contributors. That's out of necessity. Their quality has been gauged, and it's efficient for us to draw upon them. It's reliable. And he gives a lot of the usual advice. Send us your best stuff. Make sure it's well presented. It's polished. Don't demand things from us. Don't despair when we reject it. Don't complain about us and and argue and say we probably just didn't understand it. This is all sounds like it could have been written last year. He gives some minor advice along with it. Don't overuse italics. Use good paper and black ink and so on. Don't add important stuff in footnotes. Work it into the regular text. It's a long piece filled with references to Keats and Milton and Emerson and Shakespeare, full of quotes and historical references. But the main personality that comes through is his, a thoughtful, earnest, discerning, experienced editor, someone that an ambitious poet might hope to impress. Well, there was such a poet, a 31-year-old who was living in Amherst, who was sufficiently eager or emboldened by this piece, who wanted to connect with Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Emily Dickinson. In 1870, she wrote him a letter and asked, Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? That's literally how it begins. Often when you read a sentence like that, you you look at the letter and, and that sentence comes after six pages of other stuff. Mr. Higginson, I am a, a young woman living in Amherst, etc., etc. No, that's how she starts. I'm going to read the whole letter because... Emily Dickinson. (laughs) So good. 15 April 1862. Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed, and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. If I make the mistake that you dared to tell me, would give me sincerer honor toward you. I enclose my name, asking you, if you please, sir, to tell me what is true. That you will not betray me, it is needless to ask, since honor is its own pawn. We notice the dashes because, again, it's Emily Dickinson. There's not a single period in the letter. It's question marks and dashes. You can imagine the editor, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, looking at this with lazy eyes and thinking, what the hell? This weirdo is doing everything I said not to do. She's not using conventional punctuation. She's not even asking if her poems are good or worthy or publishable. She doesn't even sign her name. She included a second envelope with a card inside that had her name printed on it. Why make it so difficult for the editor? And yet, 
And yet, she included four poems. She had by now written 400. She'd published a handful in newspapers anonymously. She'd shared a few with friends and family, but for the most part, they were just hers living in her room. She'd assembled a few of them into booklets, 20 poems going into a booklet of folded pages. And yes, her work was alive. Higginson wrote back immediately. The two of them corresponded for the next 25 years, and he went to Amherst to meet her. This was the description when he wrote to his wife, that he wrote to his wife in a letter that he wrote later that night on the day that he first met Emily Dickinson. He says, quote, A step like a pattering child's in entry, and in glided a little plain woman with two smooth bands of reddish hair, and a face a little like Belle Doves, not plainer, with no good feature, in a very plain and exquisitely clean white peak, and a blue net worsted shawl. She came to me with two day lilies, which she put in a sort of childlike way into my hand, and said, These are my introduction, in a soft, frightened, breathless, childlike voice, and added under her breath, Forgive me if I am frightened. I never see strangers and hardly know what I say. But she talked soon and thenceforward continuously and deferentially, sometimes stopping to ask me to talk instead of her, but readily recommencing. He recorded, Higginson also recorded for his wife, some of the things that Emily Dickinson had said during their meeting. Quote, My father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books. Another snippet was, If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold no fire ever can warm me, I know that is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? And, quote, How do most people live without any thoughts? There are so many people in the world. You must have noticed them in the street. How do they live? How do they get strength to put on their clothes in the morning? End quote. A few more I'll share. Quote, Truth is such a rare thing. It is delightful to tell it. And, I find ecstasy in living. The mere sense of living is joy enough. Higginson records it. She said that when she read Shakespeare, she thought, why is any other book needed? And when he left, this might be my favorite, when he left, when it came time for him to leave, she said to him, quote, gratitude is the only secret that cannot reveal itself, end quote. Throughout their correspondence, as he served as her editor for many of her poems, he took a light touch. The genius was hers. He was not there to cross out too much or suggest words or demand new topics from her. He offered support, encouragement. He was steadfast in his devotion to her and her poetry. It was a good move. If someone can say to you, gratitude is the only secret that cannot reveal itself, they are thinking on a different level. You don't tell Mozart what his melody should be. Higginson was asked to speak at her funeral, and he came and read a poem by Emily Bronte. 
And when her family found hundreds of her unpublished poems in her room after her death, they turned to Thomas Wentworth Higginson to edit and publish them. He also was writing books of his own, histories, biographies, a novel. With Emily, he was a devoted editor, encouraging and eager to share her writings with the world. He was a clergyman, also a Unitarian minister, a reformer who wrote books about women's equality, calling for it. One of those great 19th century New England types he was, who dreamed of books and nature and tried to improve this fledgling nation, this democracy, still in its swaddling clothes. And yet, and yet, in that gap of years we skipped over, the country went through seismic upheaval, rebellion, war, uneasy recovery. And in that world, the seemingly bookish and mild-mannered clergyman Thomas Wentworth Higginson showed a different side. We'll have that part of his story after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. In 1847, Thomas Wentworth Higginson graduated from Harvard Divinity School and was ordained, taking on a church in Newburyport, and immediately setting forth his views on women's rights, labor, anti-slavery. Two years later, the congregation kicked him out of the church as too liberal for them. Undeterred, he joined a society that would aid slaves escaping from the South, but who were subject to the predations of the Fugitive Slave Act, an 1850 law that required northern states to seize and return escaped slaves back to the South. Tensions were mounting. Slavery still existed. The institution was horrific, and yet it seemed entrenched. How many elections do you go through? How much debate on the Senate floor? How long do you, as the citizen of a democracy, 
but one with a conscience. How much do you have to put up with when slavery is not just some faraway policy, but when you have to follow the lead of slave owners? A man appears in a state where the people have chosen that that man should be free, chosen through the ballot box, through their democracy, according to their state and local laws, and yet they now have to send him back to another state that has a different view, where a man claims to own him and to subject that man from there to abuse. In such a scenario, knowing that this is what your countrymen are perpetrating, is voting, which hasn't seemed to fix the problem, seems to be making it worse, is voting enough. Well, as we know now, war was not far away. More would be done within 10 years. But let's return to that moment, 1850, when it's not at all clear that war will occur or what it will mean. Slavery seems hopelessly embedded from the Constitution forward into the life, into the fabric of American society. For someone like Thomas Wentworth Higginson, he's delivering lectures and sermons, he's putting out pamphlets, but are those enough? Enter John Brown. John Brown was a white man who settled in a black community in New York. He became obsessed with the idea of taking more overt action. He went to Kansas with a wagon full of guns and ammunition. He led anti-slavery guerrilla forces trying to help the cause of freedom. A mob of slavery sympathizers sacked the town of Lawrence. Brown responded by listening to his God and believing that his mission was divine and then leading a raid on the pro-slavery forces. Brown and his men dragged five men out of their cabins and hacked them to death. From there, Brown fled to Canada, where he made plans to set up a stronghold in the mountains of Maryland and Virginia, where escaped slaves could go. He convened a meeting of black and white supporters. They signed documents and committed themselves to providing moral and financial support. Six of them in particular, the Secret Six, were devoted abolitionists from Boston. They included teachers and journalists, a businessman, and a pair of ministers. One of those ministers was Thomas Wentworth Higginson. The Secret Six had helped to pay for Brown's actions in Kansas. Now it was 1859 and John Brown was headed to Harper's Ferry, where there was a federal armory. The Secret Six planned to back him in this endeavor, too. The battle at Harper's Ferry became hugely important in the history of America. John Brown and 20 others, 16 white men and 5 black men, all of them armed, took over the armory in the hopes that they could lead escaped slaves in an army of emancipation throughout the South. They managed to hold out for a while, taking 60 men hostages, but within a couple of days... Federal troops arrived under the command of Robert E. Lee, who overpowered Brown and his men. Brown was wounded in the battle, and ten of his men, including two of his sons, were killed. Brown was then subject to trial for murder, slave insurrection, and treason, was found guilty, and executed. At that point, three, the Secret Six was in some hot water. Who had backed 
this treasonous John Brown. Three of the Secret Six fled to Canada, hoping for safety there. One of them fled to Italy, where he stayed with Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, of all people. <laughs> Might have to make that a, a show. <laughs> what were they doing there, hosting one of the Secret Six? Anyway, one of them, that's four, three in Canada, one in Italy. One of them dodged the heat by having himself declared insane so he could hide out in an asylum. That left one man who risked exposure as being one of the men who backed the treasonous John Brown. That man, you might have guessed, was Thomas Wentworth Higginson. He stayed in Boston. Before the trial, he, before John Brown's trial, he, he had tried to arrange for a prison breakout to free Brown, whom he viewed as a hero, but Brown objected. He didn't want to be part of the plan. Higginson also admonished one of the men who was leaving to for Canada, Franklin Benjamin Sanborn. That name cracks me up. Not Benjamin Franklin Sanborn, but Franklin Benjamin. His parents must have really loved the name Frank and not wanted to use that as... Anyway, Higginson admonished Franklin Benjamin Sanborn for fleeing. He said, quote, can your clear moral sense justify our holding our tongues in order to save ourselves from the reprobation of society, even as that nobler man whom we did provoke to enter into danger becomes the scapegoat of that reprobation, going for us even to the gallows? End quote. Jason Sanborn returned to Concord, Massachusetts, where five federal marshals turned up and arrested him, planning to haul him before the Senate. Sanborn was lucky in avoiding the show trial. 150 townspeople in Concord showed up to wrestle him back out of the coach that the marshals were trying to put him in. A judge intervened and demanded that the marshals set him free by issuing a writ of replevin. A year and a half later, the country was torn asunder, as Victor Hugo had predicted would happen when he heard of John Brown's uh, trial. Union soldiers marched, singing a song that became known as the Battle Hymn of the Republic, with lyrics by Julia Ward Howe. You probably know this song, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, is how it begins. But that's not; those weren't the words when they first started singing that tune. They sang that tune before she gave them those lyrics. The original version they sang was about John Brown. One of those singers was our editor, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, not one to stand by when others were fighting for a cause in which he had believed his entire life. This preacher signed up for the army. He became a captain at first in, 18, in uh, August of 1862, four months after he received Emily Dickinson's first letter wanted to mention that to show you how his role as an editor and devotee of literature was intertwining with his call to action on behalf of his country. Four months after he received that first letter from Emily Dickinson, he was in battle. He was wounded, which led to a few months of recovery. When he returned, he was promoted to colonel and he was placed in charge of the South Carolina Volunteers, which was the first Union regiment composed of former slaves. 
1870, after the war was over, the year that he met Emily in Amherst for the first time, he was completing a book about his experiences called Army Life in a Black Regiment. Until the blacks were armed, he wrote in that book, there was no guarantee of their freedom. It was their demeanor under arms that shamed the nation into recognizing them as men. End quote. We often say when we're talking about people in the past, oh, that was just how things were, or oh, they didn't know any better then, or oh, it's not fair to judge them by modern-day standards. Well, Thomas Wentworth Higginson is an example that people did know better, a lot of them, and those that didn't were often trying not to hear. I'll confess that I was surprised when I learned that the preacher who loved literature was also a battlefield hero. But after learning about Thomas Wentworth Higginson, I'm not surprised that the man who clearly saw the truths of his era was also the man who perceived the genius of Emily Dickinson. Eve, Johalem, and Julie Sternberg, a pair of book dreamers, are here after this. That's quite a welcome. Here we go. This is fun. I'm not sure how much you need to know, but these guys are great. They have a great podcast called Book Dreams, and they are friends of this show, and they have a new project for the holidays. I've donated to it, and I hope you will consider doing the same. We will talk all about it and about podcasting and books and all sorts of other stuff. So here we go. Okay, joining me now are children's book authors and podcasters and book dreamers, Julie Sternberg and Eve Johalem. They're here today to talk about their podcast, Book Dreams, their literary nonprofit, Book Dreams, Inc., and a special project to help some kids in need just in time for the holidays. Julie and Eve, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, and we're thrilled to be here. Yes, thank you, Jack. We're delighted. So I know we're not related in real life, but I feel like our podcasts are a little bit. I don't know if brother mm-hmm. and sister is too strong. Maybe they're cousins or or maybe our podcasts are kids who attended preschool together. Could we say that? Sure. I love yeah, that. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually feel like you might, like history of literature might be sort of a big brother to us. Big not, brother. Yeah. yeah. Not, in a, not, in a, <laughs> not that kind of thing. Not a bullying <laughs> way. So, but yeah. so helpful to us from our earliest days. And, you know, we, you've always been such a great source of support and advice. Um, so, oh. yes, absolutely. Siblings oh, forever. good. Well, I feel uh, glad that we're all in the same family, although I do feel like if we're kids who attended preschool together, my podcast is the one with the runny nose and the mismatched socks <laughs> saying, like, how did you how did you get so well put together? No, no, you no, know, we're, you're the one at, you're, we're in the corner of, of the playground. and You're like, no, come on. Come on in. It's fine. Fun. Yeah. yeah, right, right. You can let go of your parents hand. Everything's yeah. going to be OK in here. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I had a friend who one day his, his wife was working, so he got his daughter ready and everything, and he took her to preschool, and she walked in the door, and the teacher said, well, good morning, B. Did Daddy do your hair today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're 
much. Okay. He tried. Yeah. Yeah, he tried. It was obvious. It would have been for me, too. I only have boys, but I'm sure uh, I would have been in the same boat as him. My girls say that I was a disgrace as a mother in this regard. Oh, really? Yeah, it crosses all lines. (laughs) We won't Uh, won't talk about the one haircut I gave my son. (laughs) He's still growing it out 20 years later. Okay, so why don't we start with book dreams? And I'd like to know what's been going on with book dreams and really, now that you've been podcasting for a while, I was wondering what your goal was when you started and whether you've stuck to your original vision for the podcast. Oh, yes. So let's see. Back when we started, we really wanted to tap into and help build the community of people who find joy in books. You know, we mm. we are both children's book authors. We wanted to do something together. And this seemed like a really great avenue to try the podcast route. And I would say that in certain ways, we certainly have done that. We have more listeners than we ever thought we could, and we're still around, and we love hearing from people. We had grand visions in the beginning of, this was late 2019, when we first started getting together and talking about our hopes and dreams with respect to the podcast. And we thought, oh, we could start with a podcast, and we could have a bookmobile ourselves and go around and give out books and we could gather together listeners of the podcast mm-hmm. and have book, mm-hmm. book dreams, breakfasts, all sorts of in-person events. Well, of course, this was late 2019 and quickly by the time we launched, which was March of 2020, uh, you know, that, yeah. that was not going to happen. I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> right, um, right. But in terms of community, I mean, it, it was an incredible lifeline during those months and months of, of lockdown and um so uh, it, it continued to sustain us in a community building sort of way, both just working together as a team, talking to the authors that, that we interview and hearing from listeners. It felt like we were connected in a way that we would not have been if we hadn't started the podcast. So mm-hmm. um, it was a vital community building experience that we didn't realize how it, at all how essential it would end up becoming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you who your favorite guest was. That's a crazy question. But how about <laughs> yeah. this? Which episode would you say has sparked the most uh, discussion and feedback from listeners? Eve, do you want to take that? Or do you want me to take that? What um, do you think? No, sure. sure I, can, I can take that one. <laughs> Two leap to mind immediately. And one of them is we spoke to Ariel Sabar, who's a journalist, and he's the author of a book called Veritas a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. Mm. So based on the title, I probably don't have to explain to you why people were really, really, really <laughs> into this episode. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. essentially, it's a, it's a real story that he covered from its earliest moments. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time covering this conference in Rome that had to do w- with all of these scholars. And there was this eminent academic She's a Harvard professor, and she had made this incredible discovery or come forward with this incredible discovery of this tiny little piece of papyrus that indicated that, in fact, Jesus had had a wife, which, you know, Mm. turns the whole understanding of Jesus on its head. Yeah. And it turns out, well, I don't want to give away too much, but there were a lot of complications here. It was a really fascinating story. So that, for sure, was an episode that people just really seemed to enjoy. 
And then something completely and totally different. We talked to Adrian Chalapa and Cliff Nestroff. Adrian is a comedian uh, and she's Native American. And Cliff is an historian of comedy. And he yeah. had just come out with a book called, oh, you, you've heard of this, it sounds like. I know Cliff. Cliff. Yeah. Well, he's kind of like an encyclopedia. He's got a, yeah. a an incredible mind. And I, I used to read his articles that he would post online about the history of stand-up comedy. It was always really fascinating. He would find such interesting figures and such so many details that I, I just couldn't believe how rich his articles were. His books are as well. And he had just come out with a book called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, which was about Native American comedy. And Mm. so he came on and so did Adrian. We talked to both of them. And it was just a fascinating, fascinating conversation about the history of Native American comedy, which, as you might imagine, you know, there's just a lot of complexity and detail there that was new to Julie and me and I think maybe new to, to many of our listeners And that was another one that people just really seemed to love and get a lot out of and enjoy. Yeah, and Adrian had a lot of personal stories, too, about what it's like to be a Native American comedian today and the challenges uh, and rewards of that. So we got both personal and had this historical context. So I think those kinds of episodes tend to do really as well as well with that combination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll I'll put links to those uh, in the... Show notes, I'm guessing, what are they, like $10 an episode, $20 an episode? How much does it cost to, <laughs> oh, uh, for yeah. listeners who want to listen? There's a lot less than that. In fact, oh, they're really? free. <laughs> wow. Really free. Wow. All what a bargain. Enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Is podcasting what you thought it would be? Uh, you, it sounds like it, you've gotten a lot of the sense of community that you thought. Has there Have there been any surprises since you've started? Well, I I should say I went into this having absolutely no idea what to expect. Mm, So mm -hmm. um, it's not what I thought it would be, but I had no idea what it could possibly be. (laughs) Everything has been a surprise. Let's be clear that Eve agreed to be my podcast partner without even really having listened to that many podcasts, which was very generous of her. (laughs) Julie and I were having breakfast and we were feeling kind of bleak about the state of the world. And we said, okay, we need to do something that brings us joy. And then we said, well, books bring us joy. You know, and Julie said, well, do you want to do a podcast about books? And I said, sure. But I didn't really mention that I had pretty much never listened to any podcast at that time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but now look at us. It's, It's turned out really well. What's yeah. been so, so fabulously surprising to me is really the the folks who've agreed to come on the podcast. I'm sure you've had this experience too, Jack, but yeah. we've talked to Marlon James, who's just an incredibly, you know, he just won every award there is to, to win as an author. And I had spoken, no, I had never spoken to him. I had listened to his podcast and he's so charming. I think it's called Marlon and Jake Speak to Dead People. Some, mm. Marlon and Jake... It's, it's a podcast about books in which all of the authors have already died so that they can give their full, honest opinion without worrying mm. about anyone getting mad at them. And I'm yeah. not giving you ex- the exact right title. But anyway, I love listening to him. So when he agreed to come on and talk with us about his latest book, Moonwitch Spider King, I was just, we were both beyond ourselves excited. And, you know, Catherine yeah. Schultz, Casey Sepp, our interview with Amani Perry, who is a She's a Princeton professor who has just written a book called South to America. That's a finalist for the National Book Award. So that's been a wonderful, just incredibly rewarding surprise mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. yeah. 
I also, I had a, a podcast a long, long time ago, not as long as you've been podcasting, Jack, but, you know, many years before we started this one. And I've been very pleasantly surprised by the changes in the available technology, but that's, mm, that's kind mm-hmm. of in the weeds. But there are yeah. services now for recording folks and editing that just did not exist before. So that's been really nice. Okay. And now as the holiday season approaches, it's a time for giving. And I understand you've set up a literary nonprofit, Book Dreams, Inc. So why don't you tell us what that is exactly and what do you have planned for the end of the year? Yes. So our nonprofit, Book Dreams, Inc., is devoted to getting books to kids who lack access to books. And for our project coming up at the end of the year, we're filling the bookmobile of the Joyride Bookshop in San Diego with books for the students at the Monarch School, which serves the local homeless children there. Mm. And so the bookmobile will arrive at the school and each of the roughly 300 children at the school will be able to choose a book for themselves just in time for the holidays. And we've had invaluable help from Words Alive, which is an organization that's devoted to inspiring a commitment to reading. And we're really, really excited about getting books into the hands of these kids. And every Mm. dollar that we're able to raise that is beyond the cost of the books for the children will go to books in the library at this school. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, my favorite part of the description, Mm. each of the children will be able to choose a book for themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the part yeah, I love. I, I feel like so often we grownups jump in and, and say, well, let's get them good books and here's what you should read. It's, you know, whatever classic we think of or here's a good edifying book that, you know, but my best memories of being a child is to be in the library or in the bookstore or going to the bookmobile and being able to pick one out for myself I think I'd, I'd yeah. rather have one book that I got to pick out than 10 books that my parents or aunts and uncles would get for me, even though they were very well-intentioned and often I would find them later on my shelf or something. But just that, just the joy of of feeling like, you know, I'm really interested in spies and I'm going to get this book about spies or whatever the, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it was things my parents didn't even know that I liked. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and you're bringing back memories. <laughs> totally, totally. But it's still a great pleasure, right? I mean, I'm sure all three of us. There are very few things I can think of that I love more than going into yeah. a bookstore and just oh, exploring yeah. and picking something I'm excited about. So yes, we certainly want the kids to have that same wonderful, magical experience. Yeah. And it might be, I mean, for these kids, it, it is a, a very special uh, chance. And But for any kid these days, you know, when you said that about going to a bookstore, I mean, you know, some kids are maybe now 30, 40 miles from a bookstore. Oh, um, yeah. The, the yeah. way they've uh, started disappearing, you know, ordering online is just not the same of seeing the book and having those colors pop off the shelves and and just feeling like you're in a world where things are possible and discovery is there for the taking. So mm-hmm. true. Absolutely. And it's yeah. so nice that our partner Joyride Books has this bookmobile that they, they can yeah. drive right up to the school and so the kids can can go inside and pick something. It's just really fun. Right. So I was going to ask you about Joyride. They're a children's bookshop in San Diego. Their website, if people want to check them out, is uh, Joyride Bookshop. 
www.indielight.org, their children's bookstore in San Diego. So they know what they're doing. They'll be picking out good books and you guys are helping to supply the funds to make this possible. And how can people help? Uh, they, you can donate. That's the best way to help. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyone who wants to can go to our website, which is bookdreamsinc.org. So that's bookdreamsinc.org. And there's a blue link at the top of the page. And if you keep scrolling down, there are two more yellow buttons that all say donate and they all work equally well. And all of the donations are tax deductible and no amount is too small. And when you donate, we will send you a long list of book recommendations from Book Dreams guests, mm. some of whom are almost certainly among your favorite authors, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So it's very easy. And then you'll have a nice long list of books to shop from for the holidays. Yeah, just in time for the holidays. That person who is hard to shop for, you can check yeah. out the book recommendations and see if there are any good fits there. Yeah, we've had exactly. a really a lot of fun asking each of our guests and collecting the answers for a long time. You know, what's one book you love and why do you love it? So we've been collecting that information and we're going to put it all into a, a pretty document for folks who donate. So they'll have the the book itself and, and what it is that the guests said that they love about it to help them choose. Okay. Well, we at the History of Literature podcast will be donating. Julie Sternberg and Eve Johalem, good luck with the project, which sounds wonderful. I hope it has much success and good luck with book dreams. Thank you so much Thank for having so, us. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Gratitude is the only secret that cannot reveal itself, as someone once said. So I will reveal it on gratitude's behalf and say thank you to Emily Dickinson and to Thomas Wentworth Higginson and to Eve and Julie. Please do think about giving a bit to their book dreamers out there in San Diego, giving books to kids for the holidays. Boy, is that ever in my wheelhouse. I have donated to their fund, as I mentioned I would. I hope they fill that little bookmobile and those little eyes light up when they see it coming and the little hands each get their book and hold it close to their little hearts. Who knows what kind of wind will get from those butterflies flapping their wings. I believe it will be a good wind, a nice breeze coming from a place of love and literature. The links to the fund where you can donate will be in the show notes. And my gratitude also extends to you, dear listeners. No need for me to keep that a secret. I'm glad you spent some time with us today. Alexander Pushkin is going to be next, I think. We'll talk to his intrepid translator, and a really great episode on women writers is coming up next Monday. That's with Anna Beer. That's one you won't want to miss. So please do subscribe and tell all your friends. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.